session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next week's show, probably on Wednesday's show, I'm going to have a guest on Monday, I'll announce that in a second. But the book of the week for this week is Neurologic, The Brain's Hidden Rationale Behind Our Irrational Behavior by Eliza J. Sternberg. Neurologic, the brain's hidden rationale behind our irrational behavior. Again, chose the book by its cover. Sounded interesting uh, because I think we try to think of ourselves as rational beings or that we're always being rational. But really, if we take a closer look at our own or anyone's thoughts and behaviors, we'll see a lot of what we probably could consider irrational. So I wanted to see what this um, hidden rationale is. So sometimes we can understand why we might be irrational in some predictable ways. So uh, looking forward to sharing that with you next Wednesday because on Monday night's show a few weeks ago, you might remember um, that the book of the week was Tyrannical Minds by Dean A. Haycock. And I've been in touch with him and thankfully uh, the timing has worked out for him to be on the show via telephone Monday night to talk about that book, Tyrannical Minds, which was on psychological profiling, narcissism, and dictatorship, but also some related topics. So he'll be on the show Monday. So I'll talk about this book, Neurologic, by Eliza Sternberg, on next Wednesday's show. Just as today, I'll be talking about the book of the week from last week, because on Monday's show, uh, I had Dr. Jennifer Galvin on the show to talk about the value of depression, which... Uh, can sound like a paradoxical title because we tend to think of depression as just this negative thing and illness that has to get rid of. But on that show, we discussed how there can be some value in it as well and that we shouldn't think of it as just this negative thing that sometimes going through the pain or the sadness or there's some lessons and lesson or lessons to be learned from what we're going through. So we don't want to just ignore it or deny it. So a big thank you again to Dr. Jennifer Galvin for joining me on Monday night's show, and the book of the week that I'll talk about today is definitely related to that, What to Do When Someone You Love is Depressed by Mitch Gallant and Susan Gallant. And um, I think a lot of people react to this even on social media. I got some messages and comments about it. Some of them jokes, things like, um, well, the title is What to Do When Someone You Love is Depressed, and some people said things like, find them a therapist and run away. Um, and... I think they were joking, but it does reflect the sentiment that we have that something like depression or mental illness is just this horrible thing that we have to avoid or that only some people have it or that you can't have a healthy life or healthy relationship with someone who has any kind of mental illness or mental issue. When the truth is we really all have 
mental issues or issues going on, just like physically, everyone has health concerns. Um, no one is perfectly healthy. No one is perfectly psychologically or emotionally healthy either. And so that is something to accept about anyone we meet, but of course, first and foremost of ourselves. So what to do when someone you love is depressed? And I'll also make this comment. I was just talking about how on Monday's show, we talked about the value of depression, that there actually can be some uh, value in it, that we don't want to just ignore it. But that doesn't mean, and I mentioned this Monday night, but I'll make sure I mention it again today, that I'm saying depression is just a good thing and it doesn't require treatment at times and we shouldn't take it very seriously. Absolutely, we should. It is... A mental illness and it can manifest in lots of different ways and it can even lead to suicide someone taking their own life um, and even before that debilitating their life in various ways from not being able to work or damaging relationships so it can have very huge negative effects so i don't want to in any way undermine the suffering that people go through or the fact that really people should get help when they're experiencing depression and help is out there so that's, in a way, what this book was about, not when someone themselves is depressed, but what do you do when someone you love is depressed? And it's not very simple. And this is, in a way, a how-to book to some degree, but really how-to is going to be different from person to person and whoever you're dealing with. And a big part of even this what do you do, first it depends on the relationship you have with the person, of course. If it's a friend or acquaintance, that's going to be less involvement. If it's your child, that's going to be a different level of involvement. If it's a husband and wife, that might be different as well. Um, but part of it is looking at what to do, but also what not to do, or recognizing your responsibility. Sometimes people think, well, if my loved one is depressed, I am supposed to fix them or cure them, or I have to be their hero. And you can't be their hero. You can't fix them or take away their depression. Depression, especially, is not something that just goes away or gets taken away easily anyway. But what you can be, and the book uses this term a lot, a strengthened ally, meaning that you are there on their side with them, and you will be strong and supporting them, and no matter what, you will stay with them. But you're an ally, not someone who is going to fix it or who can fix it or will feel responsible to do so. And so we have to, as always, find that balance. Of course, we don't want to ignore it and not be involved at all. But at the same time, we don't want to get so involved or think it's our responsibility to make them get better. Because if we do that, we usually end up hurting them more than helping them anyway. Because what can happen is a few things. One is if you feel so responsible for fixing your partners or your friends or loved ones' depression you're going to start to get upset with them over time when they don't change. Because if I feel that I'm supposed to make you better, when you don't get better, I'm going to get almost mad at you, frustrated with you about that. I won't give you the space to heal or to go through whatever the process is because I'm taking it personally. And that's what we have to make sure we don't do. Of course, when you love someone, you get affected by them if they're happy or sad. That's part of being in relationships. We get affected. We're talking about the degree. So it's not about not being affected, but it's realizing that I can't feel dependent on that, that if you get better, I feel good about myself. If you stay bad, I feel like I'm being a bad mother, father, husband, wife, whatever it is. I'm going to be here with you, but I'm not going to put that pressure on you that you have to get better immediately. Another problem that can arise if you are too involved, if you're trying to do too much, um, is burnout. 
that you are going to try to help them. And because you're doing so much, you begin to burn out. And the book talks about that and how a lot of times, of course, it takes a toll on you. Living with someone who's depressed, for example, will take a toll. But then if also you're trying to do everything for them and also start to neglect yourself, that's a recipe for burnout where you're going to want to give up. And now you won't be okay. So your partner, your loved one is dealing with depression, but now you might have a breakdown or become depressed yourself or whatever else it might be because you're not taking care of yourself and you're trying to do too much. And that is also a problem that you don't want to do too much for those reasons. So there is a chapter in the book about burnout, uh, which I think is very important because when you're dealing with someone with severe depression, it's going to take a toll on you. And so you have to be aware of what you're doing. And there's also a part of the book where it talks about setting limits, which is also important because you can communicate to your partner, your loved one. These are the things I will do. And here's how I want to support you. But also I want to give you your space as well. Or there's some things I can't accept, or I still need to have some of my own alone time or time with friends or other things. And you can communicate that to your loved one and make it clear to them, but make sure they know. And the limits at times can feel like you're saying I'm withholding, but really what you're saying is I'm trying to create a balance and a structure for us where we both feel okay, where you know what to expect and I'll be giving you the support that you want and need from me, but also I'm going to make sure I take care of myself as well. And the better you establish that and make that clear, the better it goes. Unfortunately, what I often see, not just with dealing with a depressed loved one, but in general with these types of issues where families become too codependent or too involved in each other's lives, is that people feel like, well, if I could do something to make them feel better, shouldn't I do it? How could I not do something that makes my loved one feel better or takes away some pain or some burden or makes life easier for them? And the problem is that when you do that, you also take away their sense of living their own life. And he talks about it in the book, especially when it comes to depression, that people do feel immobilized or they lose motivation or they lose the confidence and belief in themselves that they can live their own lives. And so you might unfortunately be reinforcing that belief when you try to take over their whole life. They say, oh, well, he can't do this anymore, so I'm going to do it for him. Or she can't cook for herself or feed herself, so I'm going to make sure I do it every single time. And again, it's about finding that balance. Of course, you don't want to completely abandon them when they need you, but you also don't want to immobilize them further or make them feel even weaker that they feel like, really, I can't do anything on my own. I need you. And this is where the codependency can come into play, where someone maybe might not realize it, but you as the caregiver or the caregiving partner or parent or whatever it might be, might actually be attached to this role of being the hero, the strong one, the one who is needed. And because of that, you actually won't want your loved one to get better. Because when they're depressed, you feel needed and you feel the dynamics are in a way that feels comfortable for you. But if they become strong again and don't need you, you won't feel very good. So you might enable them or even reinforce in a way this feeling of weakness within them that they can't do anything on their own because it's serving you in some way. And that's very unfortunate and you have to be aware of that. Am I really helping or do I want to be the helper so bad that I don't want my partner to actually get helped? And speaking of getting helped, as I was saying, as much as I think there can be a lot of value in sad feelings and even in a depression, there can be value there. I think that treatment is very important. And he goes over different types of treatments, beginning with 
psychotherapy, which can be very helpful for depression. Also medications, which can be helpful, and there are many different classes. We might be familiar with things like Prozac and Lexapro, the classic uh, SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but there are many other classes as well. And for severe depression, medication can be helpful and sometimes is almost necessary to help get someone out of a very deep depression. And so people can have some fears of it's addictive, I'm going to need it for the rest of my life. Um, there are side effects, that's real. Um, but some of the issues of it's addictive, the good thing about most antidepressants is that they're not habit-forming or addictive in the way that anxiety medications or pain medications can be. So thankfully, that is a plus. Um, the other part of I'll have to take it for the rest of my life once I start taking it, uh, that can be true. Some people never stop taking it because they realize they, in a way, feel they need it because um, I don't always like the term chemical imbalance, but there are some imbalances or differences in their brain that need a little bit of assistance or a little aid in that way. And so they take it for the rest of their lives. Some people take it for six months and they get better and they stop and they feel okay. Maybe they'll take it again at some other time, but there shouldn't be this feeling that if I start taking it, I have to take it for the rest of my life. If you decided to take it for the rest of your life, it could be because you need it and you'll feel better with it and think you um, will live a better life with it. So it could be that it's required for you to live the life you want. But also, you know, this book is about what to do when someone you love is depressed. A very hard part that a lot of people have a challenge with, and even oftentimes callers will be talking about this, how do I help or even get my loved one to get help? How do we talk to them? And for me, the important piece, I, I sometimes make this distinction, which might seem just like semantics or the wording, but I think it's very important, is that rather than telling someone they need help, we tell them that they deserve help. Because when you tell someone you need help, it can sound like you're saying you're the problem, you're sick, it's on you. But deserving help means that you're in pain and you deserve to get the help that will make you feel better, that will help you in this. You deserve it, not you need it. And the way you can do that very often is to connect with the person at their pain. Unfortunately, what most people do is they judge the loved one. They say, see how you haven't gone out of bed in two days. See how messed up you are, how bad your life is, or how could you live like this? Or how am I supposed to live with you if you're going to do this? And so we come at them with the feeling of judgment and telling them, because you're so messed up, you need to go get help. You have to go now. But what I prefer and I think works much better is to connect with them at their pain. When your loved one comes to you and says, I've been feeling so down and sad and I feel like I hate myself or whatever it is they're saying, uh, first of all, we try to stay with them. The first response most people do is just to convince them they're wrong. No, you, what are you talking about? Your life is good. You're good. Everything is good. So first we want to make sure we don't do that. But secondly, once we empathize with them in the way that we're staying with them, we want to let them know that it seems like you're in so much pain. That's what makes me think you deserve to get some help. When they're sharing that pain with you, that's when you can connect with them at the pain and get them to see that help could be something that would make them feel better and that they deserve that right now. They deserve to feel better. Um, the book also covers how serious depression can be leading to thoughts and unfortunately the act of suicide. And so we have to take that seriously. And I always talk about how you always want to take it seriously when a loved one uses that word or talks about killing themselves in any way. 
don't just ignore it because it's an uncomfortable conversation or because you're in denial and are hoping that it's not true and say, oh, no, she just said that or he just said that. They don't mean it. Actually talk to them about it. And I also mentioned this, that when I say take it seriously, doesn't mean immediately call 911, but it means that you're not going to ignore it. You're going to have a conversation with them about that. You know, when we were having that fight, you said, sometimes I feel like I just don't want to be here anymore and I want to do something about it or whatever they said. And then you just let them know, you know, I got concerned about that. So I wanted to talk to you. Maybe they'll say I was just angry and I said something that moment and I'm not thinking about it. Maybe they'll say, I don't know. Sometimes it crosses my mind. Whatever it is, you want to create a conversation and a discussion that allows them to be open about that because suicide is very real. And he talks about in the book that I think sometimes it's hard to say every suicide could be prevented, but many can if we were to create conversations and create the space for the person to come to us. Because um, he also talks about this in the book, that even people who are suicidal very often still don't completely want to die. They're not 100% on that. They can be, if you want to call it convinced, or they can um, get out of that state that they are in at that point. And that's why even uh, when we look at confidentiality in psychotherapy, one of the reasons we can break it is if someone is suicidal. In a way, we're saying every worth, every life is worth saving. We want to save everyone. But also we recognize that sometimes when people are depressed or are in that state, they feel like taking their life is the right step. But we're almost saying we don't think you're right about that. You think it in that moment, but we don't even think you'll feel that way later on. And that's why we're going to intervene and protect you and save you and hopefully get you to see that, no, your life is worth living and that that solution is not a solution. It just feels that way at this moment. And so he talks about uh, suicide as well and also how to have those discussions during the book. I say he because it does seem like um, there's a, it's a husband and wife team, but Mitch Gallant is the psychologist, I believe, and he's the one that seems to be talking about more his experiences. But I believe he wrote the book with his wife, Susan lot. But uh, this is a great book for anyone who is dealing with someone who is dealing with depression or any mental illness. And because of the statistics, uh, we know that's most people, you're going to deal with mental illness, either yourself or someone you love. Um, so it can be helpful in, in giving you some guidance of what to do and also what not to do, what your role is and is not in dealing with someone who is depressed. So that's what to do when someone you love is depressed by Mitch Gallant and Susan Gallant. All right, we reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, thanks for calling. Hi, thank you for uh, having me. Um, so I just had, um, well, something has been going on with me, and I wasn't sure exactly what it is because it's very recent, about like two, three months now. Okay. And um, I do have like, um, I wrote down all the, the, the like the feelings um, I have or the signs that I see uh, within myself that has been changed. Um um, within the past three months, mm -hmm. and um, I was wondering if I could like tell you all those signs, and um, maybe you could help me figure out what is what is it that is going on with me, okay. and how I can solve them. Sure, let's let's try that out. So you said it's been going on for about three months. These things, these changes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, um. So why is it three months? Is because so. Um, 
I've been in um, I've been in a relationship with uh, my boyfriend for about uh, a year and eight months now, um, but um, overall, but three months ago, um, he he um, kind of broke up with me because he wanted to he wanted to be alone and uh, he wanted to uh, focus on himself and focus on work. And um, so that is the reason why he broke up with me. And um, we are back together right now. Okay, so how, while. how long were you yeah. broken up? Uh, for about, like, two months. Okay. Yes. Um, and um, at, the, at the beginning of um, when he broke up with me, I was feeling very, very sad and uh, very depressed and all those negative feelings but um i got better a little well okay. i thought i got better and until we got back together and um i started to feel all these um negative emotions and um negative thoughts and um i didn't exactly know why um so uh can i go over some sure of the... well, let me just ask you a few questions how old are you yes. and how old is he um i'm 19 and he's 18. okay so when you guys started uh, dating, you were 18 and he was 17? I was, uh, so we are eight months apart. We're mm -hmm. not exactly a year apart. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I was date, when I started dating him, um, I was actually turning 18 and he was, he, um, he just turned 17. Okay. And yes. And so, um, is it okay if I go over Me, the... Yes, go ahead. Uh, thank you. So, um... Uh, so the feelings I feel is one of them is I overthink a lot, and um, I wasn't overthinking um, before that. Uh, and right now, I just um, whatever I do, whatever I say, um, I just overthink and overthink for um, it could be for like hours sometimes, but it's mostly for like thirty minutes to forty minutes. Um, I overthink about like uh, an action I did, and then. I would feel really bad about it, and then I would feel like um, I can't do, I, I can't take back what I did, or I can't fix it in a way. Um, Is it just with him, or in general? Um, right now, specifically with him. Okay, so yeah. you get, you overthink, and I, I'll tell you something about overthinking in a second, but you sure. overthink something you did with him, and you make it seem like why did I do that or you're making it it sounds like you make it a bigger deal than probably it is yes, and so exactly. you feel like really guilty about it or ashamed or you try to fix it with him somehow afterwards uh so yes I would feel very guilty and very ashamed sometimes of what I did and um I would try to explain it to him that for example um if uh, for example if I said something I would I would tell him that I I I didn't mean what I said as as bad as I said it to you, for example. And I would just go go on and on about how he didn't mean it and how I would like to fix it. And he would tell me that I'm overthinking, mm. and he probably got over it like the minute it was over. But um, it's just for me, I feel like um, I feel like he also thinks about it. So that's why I. I tell him a lot about what I did so that so I would make sure that he doesn't overthink or misunderstand um, 
about the action I did, for example, but I'm pretty sure this is not normal and I'm overthinking. I just don't know how to stop it. Yeah, like, now and now we might start overthinking about your overthinking. But yeah, it's... Um, there does seem to be a lot, and I have a lot of thoughts that I have about it, but I want to give you a chance to also share. The thing I, I wanted to say about overthinking is a lot of times when people say, I overthink, um, mm-hmm. they mean they keep thinking about something. But it's not really just overthinking, because if you overthink about, let's say, a problem or a philosophy or about something in politics, mm-hmm. hopefully you're taking in lots of different information to come to some conclusion. But usually when people overthink, it's not that they're just thinking more and more. It's that they're thinking to get to a certain conclusion that for some reason is either comfortable or there's just some benefit to them, even if it feels bad. For example, in this case, that what I did was really, really bad. For So for some reason, it seems like you always are going to get to that conclusion. It's not that you overthink and you say, you know what, I thought about it more and realized it was totally okay. It's not a big deal. <laughs> it seems like you always think as if it funnels you into a certain solution always or a certain uh, conclusion that what I did was really bad and I have to fix it. And so already what I'm thinking, just based on what you're saying, is there is, um, you don't feel good about what he did with the breakup. And I think you're probably very angry with him, but you didn't really express that to him. And now you do have anger towards him, which comes out in these ways. I don't know exactly what you say or or do, right. and then you feel guilty about that, um, and almost it's because I think you have so much anger within you that you try to get rid of it and feel bad about that, that then you try to make things okay to show him I totally feel good about you, and also mm-hmm. I don't think you feel very secure or stable with him after the breakup, um, almost like you feel like you're walking on thin ice, that he'll break up with you again, and you're trying yeah. to make sure you don't mess things up, but this means that you're afraid to be yourself or to be comfortable around him because you're afraid to mess it up. Because you told me very briefly, but even from what you, the way you described it, it didn't seem like it really made sense why he broke up and why he got back with you. And so maybe right. it's not clear to you what's going on. And so you feel like you're walking on thin ice, which won't be um, a good way to have a relationship or to feel good about being in a relationship if that's how you do feel. Right. Yes, that's exactly how I feel. And um, so... Um, the reason he told, he wanted to get back with me is, is that he said, um, I realized that I made a mistake and for me to be able to grow as a person, I don't need to necessarily be alone. And so I understand that. And um, I've been in that situation, so I really understand it. And since this is like his first time making this mistake, I think that's okay because you need to make mistakes to... Uh, be able to learn from it Um, right but how do you feel about what happened i mean i know you're you're just telling me from his perspective how did you feel about the breakup you said you told me you were really down and you felt like you got better but do you feel like you feel okay about what he did do you feel like you're upset with him um i just um i just as you said i just feel like it's it's gonna happen again or uh, as if i'm walking on um thin ice and It, it, it's just not the best feeling no. because you're mm-hmm. always worried that this is going to happen again. And um, maybe I'm, by like messing up little things, maybe it'll trigger um, this thought in him that he wants to be alone again. So um, you're completely right. Yeah, that's the thing is that in a relationship or just in life in general, you know, things are not perfect. They're not supposed to be perfect. We shouldn't expect it from our partner or expect to be. And there's things that happen that don't feel very good 
both ways, but you feel like you have to be perfect to keep him. And that's going to create a lot of anxiety. And like you said yourself, doesn't feel very good for you. Um, but if you feel like if it's not perfect, he's going to walk away, then you're kind of never going to get to enjoy things because if yeah. you're with him, you're afraid you're about to lose him. And then if it's a moment where you feel like you quote unquote did something wrong or bad, then you're going to feel yeah. horrible and be just so, um, you know, pressured to try to fix things that it's going to just, you know, drive you crazy too. Give me an example of something you say or do when you say I do something bad or something that might bother him. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, so by bad, I mean, like, um, I mean, I feel that it's, um, it's not okay to say, for example, I would, um, um, trying to think of a really good example to give you, um, uh, so I would, for example, um, for example, say something, um, that doesn't sound exactly right, and I just had to, like, rethink about it again before, like, saying it. Um, you know how sometimes something sounds really bright in your head and you just say it and it doesn't sound as right as it did in your head? Mm-hmm. So I would say something like that, and um, when he says, for example, um, I don't think that's, like, a right thing to say, for example, and I would, I would, and I would feel really bad... Um, uh, very quickly and I would try to explain to him that that's not what I meant and that's not like how I think and you know stuff like that no, nothing like too significant but um, okay yeah I mean you're yeah. saying they're not significant but then they become big and <laughs> I know it's hard you know in a way putting you on the spot to say exactly some one of the things you said but I do want you to think about it mm-hmm. so I get an an uh, example or an idea of what you're talking about these things you say and of course mm-hmm. we sometimes misspeak sometimes we say things in a way we don't really mean or it sounds different in our head another thing that could be going on like i was saying is that you might have some anger towards him but it's hard for you to directly express it so maybe it does come out in these you know unconscious ways that you're don't think you want to do but maybe you want to show him you're upset as well so what i was hoping you can do is when we we're about to go to a commercial break but i want to continue our conversation so try to see if you can think of an example more specific of something you Mm -hmm. said or did that then you know was one of those things that he said i don't think that was right or whatever and then you tried to fix things so see in these few minutes while we're we're not uh talking if you can think of one of those and we'll start there after the break and then continue talking about what's going on okay okay sure all right you're listening to in session with dr fatty delacqui we'll be right back back before the break we were with the caller let's go back to her now caller are you still there hello hi okay so uh we were talking about your um you said some feelings and things you've been going through lately you were in a relationship for about a year and eight mm-hmm. months about three months ago your boyfriend broke up with you and you guys were broken up for about two months and then i guess for about a month you've been together now and things definitely seem to be different but especially you find yourself overthinking and feeling really bad about things you might say to him and then try to make things right. And before the break, I uh, asked if you could uh, come up with one of a uh, specific example. So I wanted to see if we were yes. able to think of something. Yes. Okay, so, let's hear um, So I would like to tell you this example, and then after that, um, um, I'd like to tell you another thing that happened in our relationship that sure. might help you, um, you know, so... Um, 
so the example is that, for example, let's say um, he is talking to me about something and I totally disagree with him and um, and at, at some point it makes me um, kind of upset. Um, now, sometimes I would show that I'm upset with him about like something that he's telling me and um, I would be upset for, um, let's say, if he's taking me back home. On uh, the way back home, I would be upset with him and not, you know, not um, raising my voice or anything like that, but I would show him that I'm really upset with him. And so what, would you, what are you upset with him? Can you think of what he says that makes you upset? Um, just, uh, I can't really think of anything specific, okay. but I know that it's not um, anything significant. You know, just, just uh, random disagreements uh, about... Mm-hmm. Um, about like lifestyle or you know stuff like that but about so, you and uh, him not like just yes, okay yes um, and I would get home and I would think to myself um, twice and um, when I you know obviously we're not like when he um, drops me off um, he's not with me anymore so I get to have a little time to cool down and when I do I think to myself why was I acting the way I was and and then after that I would feel really, really guilty about how I was acting with him, and I would think that that made him really sad, um, and I just can't, um, I wouldn't be able to get over that guilty thought for a while. Um, so, so yeah, this is like one yeah. example of So, it seems, I mean, the way you describe the story, something happens, you get upset, it doesn't seem like you're doing anything extreme, you're just uh, upset. And then yeah. when you get home, especially maybe that separation of you're no longer with him, but then it seems like you go away from your own feeling and you go straight to his that maybe now he's sad or upset about what you did or said. And of course, with this added anxiety of will he break up with me? Um, will I lose him? You get mad at yourself. Why did you get upset? But when I hear that story, it seems like you completely discount and invalidate your own feelings rather than saying, you know, I didn't like what he said or what happened and right. I'm, you know then that can be okay but you tell yourself why did you get upset or why did you show you were upset um at least that's the way i heard the story now if you told me yes. you yeah. went yes. off on him or you were disrespectful to him i would say well that's a different aspect but you didn't mention those things so i'm gonna assume until you say you did that, that there wasn't those elements i mean is it just you being a little bit unhappy or do you yell at him or call him names uh, no, no, nothing, okay. nothing like that. It's just, just me, like changing my attitude would change to, um, like, for example, not talking to him, or just my tone would change. And um, it's not that I don't agree with my point. It's just that um, I feel like I would, I, I would be able to act more, um, like, better in a way, um, and still mm-hmm. have. Um, still have my points and agree with like my my point of view um it's just that this thought of me getting um upset bothers me of why i, I couldn't act better in a way yeah but and i mean I feel like, and you yeah. keep saying act better or you, like, you know as if you should never get upset and it, i don't know all the details and if you're getting upset all the time and you're mm-hmm. always in a bad mood with him which i don't think would be the case um, that's something, but for you to get upset about something, it seems like, again, you're discounting your feelings of why do I get upset or why do I show it in any way? And again, the way you've talked about showing it hasn't been too extreme. 
So in a relationship, we have to be able to show our feelings and say, you know, I didn't like something you said, or I'm upset about this. And hopefully you can talk about it. Now, maybe you shut down and you need some time, but then hopefully you guys would talk about it. But it seems like rather than talk about what you're feeling, you just get mad at yourself that why did you feel it? And so, yes, and I understand yeah. that this is not normal. Of course, like you should be able to express your feelings. I just don't understand why I feel so guilty for yeah. um, no big deal. Well, one, you know, one sign could be just even in that sentence, two things you said. One was um, normal, and you, you, so there's a lot of judging yourself. And then also, like, I should feel this, or I should feel that, or I shouldn't feel that. And so there doesn't seem to be a comfort you have even with yourself of letting yourself feel things or be okay that you feel something, and you judge yourself for that. And it does seem like that might be how you interact with people, that you put your own feelings away and think about theirs. And we could even look at your own family, and if you had that type of role or uh, experience that you were you know to put your feelings away to make the other person feel okay but so it seems like you get upset with yourself for having feelings which is part of being a person you're right you're right um and um another thing is that uh so um after after he broke up with me um for a while i just um i um well we used to hang out a lot and um and after that i just couldn't um, understand how it is to be completely happy and still be alone and live with yourself and um, I feel like I still don't completely understand that or um, I, I would like uh, that I mean I would like you to um, tell me how is that possible because for me right now I just I just can't see it being possible to like live with yourself and alone and still be happy. Now, when you say alone right now, are you thinking okay. just of him, or you mean like to not have someone? Um, and not have someone as your boyfriend, for example. Okay. Um, well, so, and I'm glad you're bringing that up, because, of course, we want to be in a relationship not because we need it, and we can't survive without it, but because we feel okay, but we want a relationship. We want to add that to our life, not out of necessity. Yeah. Um, and so you're saying you feel like, it's more of a need for you. And I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that, because also when you and him broke up, if you were sad for quite a while, that doesn't mean you can't be alone necessarily or that um, you need someone. But after a breakup, we feel sad. And that's a process we have to go through. And it's a grieving and a healing and growing and all of that. And so if you're saying because I was sad and let's say maybe he wasn't as sad or he was already hanging out with other people or whatever he was doing. So why was I this way? I'm not the normal one. It's not necessarily abnormal or even unhealthy to be sad after a breakup. I actually think it's healthy to be down after a breakup yeah. for some time. So when you say that, is it that you're talking about that time period or you mean ever, or are you thinking right now of, if I thought of losing him, I feel like I can't survive. Right. So um, what I mean is that um, I, what, of course, this is what I feel and um, I haven't experienced um, being without him for like let's say six months, so I, I can't think. Uh, I mean, I can't uh, talk out of experience. Mm -hmm. But what I feel is that um, I feel like if let's say he breaks up with me again, um, I feel like I won't be as happy as I am with him right now. Um, that, for example, when, when I'm with him, I enjoy things. I enjoy little things. Um, I basically enjoy everything. But um, I 
I just don't like this feeling when I know that if he's not going to be with me, I, I won't be able to enjoy um, little things again like I do right now. Okay, well, you know, one thing I will also say is the way you describe the relationship, it does seem like I'm sure you have good times with him and you enjoy these things, but overall it seems like it's creating a lot of stress for you too, more than just making you feel so yeah. good. Um, only and lately. Okay, and it seems, well, by only lately you mean since you guys got back together? Okay, cause, and I think one big thing I'm hearing is, I don't know if you guys really resolved what happened there, and going back to you holding your feelings and maybe you didn't really express to him how hurtful it was or what you felt or how he made you feel or even why he went away for a couple months and came back. I feel like you are have a lot of feelings you're holding on about that. And because of that, it's going to interfere with how you feel and also with the relationship. But you also might be afraid to bring these things up because you're afraid he'll break up with you if you bring them up. And so that's... Uh, well Yes. I'm sorry for interrupting you. No, no, go ahead. Um, so I, I did talk to him about uh, how I felt. I felt uh, a little upset. I felt very, uh, I just felt like the relationship didn't mean anything to him because how would you just leave someone like that? Um, and I explained all the things that I felt, and he, he said that he understood them one by one. And that he's sorry, and he he doesn't want to do that ever again because he said he made a mistake. Um, and it, you know, it wasn't this short of a conversation, but mm-hmm. uh, overall, it kind of made sense to me. Um, but um, I still uh, doesn't understand how. Like, I, I just don't feel really mad about what he did. Okay. So, Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you don't. And also, it's not just about feeling mad, but I think mm-hmm. you still don't have that security from him that yeah. things are going to be stable or okay. And, you know, another thing, you know, you guys are, are young. I'm not saying that the relationship mm-hmm. has to end, but you do have to be aware that for a lot of people, if they're dating at 18, 19, the mm-hmm. thought of marriage and forever and those things won't even cross their mind and probably isn't a good idea to think about those things too much right now also so it could be in his mind this idea that it's not something that's forever that this is i'm 18 and i'm dating and you know so you have to be aware of that time frame also or because of the timing um but going back to what you were saying about not having him and things being small things being enjoyable with him and without him they wouldn't be i don't know exactly what you are would be like alone I think sometimes if you're comparing today being with him versus today not being with him, well, of course, because when you think of losing him, there's a devastating feeling of the breakup and the pain, and so everything is going to not feel as good. Um, Food won't taste as good. Music won't sound as good for a little while. And that can be part of a breakup. It doesn't necessarily mean you can't be alone. It might be for a while you'll be sad without him, and that makes sense to me. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean you won't be okay alone and for sure i know you can be okay alone and you're stronger than you probably think as most of us are we usually think we can't handle something and then we face it and we realize like oh okay maybe it wasn't easy but i can handle that um Mm -hmm. in general do you feel like you're someone in your family who has very dependent relationships like let's say with your parents or with siblings like there could be a feeling of being too close with them I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Sure. What is your exact like, what is your relationship like with your mom? Um, so uh, I'm not contact in contact with my mm. mom, but I do live with my dad, and uh, my brother comes. Um, I do have one brother that comes back uh, 
uh, here to, you know, for uh, summer break and winter break. Uh, and I do have a very, very good relationship with uh, my father and my brother. Okay. What, what's going, what, why is your uh, mom not in your life? Um, well, uh, she uh, decided to just, um, um, well, so to start that, uh, she, I do have to mention that she does have um, bipolar disorder and um, very severe depression. Mm. Um, and um, so about five, uh, it's going to be six years now, but about five years ago, um, she just um, decided, one day out of the blue sky, she just decided to just leave us. Wow. Um, and uh, she hasn't been in contact with me ever since. I mean, she sends me some um, texts here and then. But um, uh, the thing is that um, her feelings aren't very stable. Um, for example, if she tells me that she misses me, um, and um, the next second she would say that I don't ever want to like talk to you again. So it's not I can't really rely on both of the um, things yeah. that she says. So. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not in uh, any contact with uh, my mom mm. and dad as well. With your mom, but with your dad, you live with him, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, um, gosh, that's a lot to deal with. And we were talking about not feeling stable in a relationship. And, of course, I'm sure what you went through with your mom can't help with that. You know, that you saying all of a sudden she just basically disappeared and now you don't see her anymore. Um I'm sure that can have an impact of how you even feel with your boyfriend now of like people that you love, they go, or how do you, how can you feel secure that they're going to stay? And another thing, you know, it makes sense. I guess I'm going to say, unfortunately, because when I asked you how old you were, when we first talked, I was surprised when you said 19, because I thought you were older, but now that you talk about what you've been through, unfortunately, it sounds Mm -hmm. like you probably, sound older you know wiser than your years as they say because you've been through too much or had to deal with a lot on your own and so in some ways you were forced to grow faster than was probably good for you that you deserve to be able to be a kid and a teenager and if your mom had bipolar i doubt that even before she left it means that things are really easy and smooth it probably means there was a lot of chaos already and then her leaving was a different type of pain or trauma um, to deal with. You know, I, I want to keep talking to you because we mm-hmm. opened up this new aspect of things that happened with your mother. And I think yeah. that definitely could have an impact of how you just deal with things and have to deal with things emotionally. So just hang mm-hmm. on the line and we'll talk a bit more after the break. Okay. Of course. Thank oh, you. Thank you. All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we were with the caller. Let's go back to her now. Caller, are you still there? Hello. Hello. Yes. Hi. All right. Um, So, you know, just before the break, you were sharing about uh, your mom, who you haven't really been much in touch with for about five years when she left the home rather unexpectedly. But you mentioned that she uh, is dealing with bipolar disorder. And also with that, of course, there's the mania, but then also the depression, which you say can be very severe. So you have very little contact with her now. And um, it's interesting, we don't want to say that everything has to relate to each other perfectly, but we can see how things can be connected because a lot of what I think you experience with your boyfriend can relate to your mother and how you've had to deal with her. 
And before I even share some of those thoughts, how do you, how do you, can you see that connection? Um, how do I, sorry, what? How would you see the connection with what you've went through with your mom affecting your relationship with your boyfriend or how you feel with him? Well, of course, um, because uh, with family, I feel like you don't really expect him to leave. Of you course. You kind of expect him to be there for, for you for as long as you live or as long as they live. Mm-hmm. So I feel like when they leave, we just kind of feel like, well, nothing stays the same. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe everyone um, leaves you at some point. So oh. I, I feel like uh, that's how they connect. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big part of it, that there's the f- a fear of abandonment, of being left, that, you know, uh, I almost hate to say it, but the mother, is m- more than anyone you'd expect, never would leave. And so not having her can give this underlying feeling of, well, then who can you trust to stay if even she didn't now we know she's dealing with it sounds like pretty significant mental illness but yeah. still um at an emotional level we don't really think of it that way we just feel it that how can i feel so secure so um i think especially because with your boyfriend there was the breakup then that even more brought into your mind and i think that's why you might feel almost obsessed with it like it's this impending doom like it's about to happen any moment and that's why even when you said i enjoy being with him, um, I just got a feeling of you being so anxious in this relationship that, again, I'm sure there are lots of good moments, but overall, it must also be very burdensome. But at the same time, you feel like you can't tolerate losing it either. So you might not even be so happy all the time in it, but you feel like you can't live without it. So you're stuck in this really tough place where it doesn't feel good either way. And at least you'd rather choose surviving and being in pain than doing what you think you can't even survive or wouldn't be able to withstand. Um, another element of that I wanted to connect when it comes to what you said about your mom is, uh, I don't know exactly, but my guess would be that she would not have a lot of space for your feelings if she's dealing with so much herself since your childhood. And so that's why I did get this sense in some of the things you talked about that you're very unfortunately good at dismissing your own feelings or putting your own feelings away and thinking about the other person. And so um, that's another way I think with your boyfriend, the relationship or the connection I can make is that when you have a feeling, then later on you get mad at yourself. Why did you have a feeling or why did you let your feelings get involved in any way? Rather than recognizing your feelings are very important and matter. And if you felt something, it's important that you get to express that. But it seems like it's easier for you to go to that place of dismissing your feelings and maybe in general you're very good at putting your feelings away so almost you get mad at yourself and you let yourself feel or let yourself express it and now with your boyfriend because of everything that's happened maybe the feelings are bigger and it's harder for you to just hold them in and so they come out more but then you beat yourself up for letting the feelings come out right yes um and so you said you don't know what the solution is um you don't know how i can help myself um, first of all, is there any way that I can go through this and, um, for example, like feel normal again as um, as as someone um, as if they never like uh, their family or their mom <clears throat> never left them? Is is there any way? Well, for that? I can understand the you know you said wanting to be normal and I wish you never had to have gone through what you did. I wish you never mm-hmm. left and I wish she. Um, was mentally healthier and all of that so that you got that from a young age but unfortunately that wasn't the case and uh, as far as can i be as if it didn't happen maybe not that as if it didn't happen 
Probably not. Mm -hmm. We're not going to, we can't erase that or make it disappear. But um, there are things you can do to help make it where you feel better about what has happened and it doesn't affect you as negatively. Because my concern is, you know, like you're talking about this fear of abandonment or even when you mention um, being alone. I don't think it's just about being alone. I think it's it brings up that feeling of abandonment, that very strong alone feeling that I'm sure you got from your mom leaving that's still there. And so that wound and that pain needs some working on. And I would highly recommend going to therapy if you haven't already. And you'll have to go probably for a long time because this is a big relational wound that you have. And um, by going to therapy, obviously, there's no promises that it'll make it as if this never happened. And in a way, it could make it that you incorporate this into who you are and become even stronger afterwards. But it's going to take some time and it's going to be hard for you to tolerate being alone. I can understand that. That makes more sense based on uh, what you talked about. And my feeling is that even before she left, you probably felt alone. Because when a mom is so consumed with their own mental illness, as I'm assuming she would be because bipolar is very serious, there isn't a lot of space for you to, to be seen, to be fully heard. And so you right. probably learn to be very much by yourself. A book I would highly recommend for you that I think you might relate to is The Drama of the Gifted Child. Have you heard of that book? Mm -hmm. uh, no. Okay, it's by Alice Miller, and it's a, a short book, but a pretty heavy and dense one. But m the book is about the gifted child as someone who um, is very sensitive to other people's feelings. And I get the sense from you that you are that way, that can be in that way empathic, pick up on other people's feelings. And then if they're in a home where one or both parents emotionally need something from the kid, from a very young age, the child learns to put away their own feelings and their own emotional needs to take care of the parent. And so mm -hmm. I would imagine that there was some of that going on for you in the home where you learned that putting your own feelings away is good. There isn't space for them. Mommy can't handle them or actually she makes you feel worse. So it's better not to have them. And so you learned in some ways to put your own feelings away and take care of the other only. Um, but unfortunately that makes it so you're more distant with your own feelings. You dismiss your own feelings. When you have them, you might even judge yourself or shame yourself for having them. And so that can be a process of you owning your own feelings that if you feel something, mm -hmm. it's okay. You don't need to hide mm -hmm. it. You don't have to feel bad if you express it. And people who love you and people who want to have a good relationship with you will want to know what you're feeling and to, to feel it with you and not to just dismiss them. But first, you have right. to be willing to first get in touch with them, but then also embrace and accept your own feelings um, to then be able to share it with someone else. Right, I see. Um, and um, so do you think, uh, so as I, uh, as I told you earlier, um, I thought that, um, let's say, if uh, my boyfriend breaks up with me, um, I just did, didn't see, because, um, um, sorry, I talked to him and I asked him, um, how it would be for you if you were to be um, like alone and mm -hmm. he said that he really doesn't have um, problem with being alone he never did because um, he said he um, he's used to doing his uh, all of his things alone mm -hmm. and it doesn't really bother him um, but for me um, I just wanted to compare it to see like um, how, what is the difference between us Right. And for me, is that um, I do also enjoy my uh, alone time, but um, I would prefer to 
uh, be not alone. And and mm-hmm. as you said, I understand now why I don't like to be alone. But um, do you think? Um, do you think is there uh, like uh, after? Uh, for example, I just I just want to know for uh, myself if he if he breaks up with me, and do you think I will ever be as happy? Um, as I was, um, what I mean is that do you think uh, a breakup could impact someone's happiness in a way that they can't get their happiness back? Um, uh, I hope I explained. Yeah, you did. It's very, it's very, it was complicated, but very deep also. First of all, when you said you asked him, there's two elements I hear when you asked him that question. One was, mm-hmm. are you going to break up with me? Like, are you okay without me? And also two, you were in some way communicating to, to him i can't i can't survive without you can you survive without me like would you be okay without me and um as far as this it's almost like you're saying could this breakup be so painful and devastating that i never recover from it is, is that in a way what you're saying yes yeah way. and that it'll be painful i'm sure it will be as i i think breakups almost in a way should be as in it makes sense that it hurts when it happens um and in your case, I think what you'll feel is, of course, the pain of breaking up with him, but it's also going to trigger the loss of your mom as well. Usually when yeah. we have really painful losses, especially ones we haven't really had the chance to work on or work through and process, when we have mm-hmm. another loss, it triggers that one as well. So I can understand that the pain you're going to feel is going to be very intense. And you don't want to face that if and when that day comes. But you don't want to face that, which I can understand because it's a lot. Um, I'm sure it will be. And I want you to be aware that some of it's not just going to be about him. It'll also be about your mom and the past losses that you've experienced. And it might feel like it's just about him because it's the only thing you're thinking about. But be aware that it's not just about him. It's about what you have gone through overall that is being triggered by him in that moment. Um, Right. Can you get better afterwards? I mean... I don't like to give guarantees, but as far as can you, absolutely you can. Every mm-hmm. adult you're looking at has gone through painful breakups because that's part of life and they can be okay and you mm-hmm. learn and you grow from them. Um, and also, I think, again, going to therapy will be very helpful for you to just in general deal with so many things, mm-hmm. but you can even come out stronger and it, I think it will make you stronger. But I think even in asking me, I could sense and there's that fear of will this almost kill me emotionally or will this just it to be too much and i think again it brings back that feeling of losing your mom which can feel like a death like when you lose that parent especially the mother figure it feels like you're dying and so there is this feeling of i can't survive without someone so i understand mm-hmm. the fear and the concern but i know from my own experience and everyone i know and people i've worked with in therapy that we, we can go through very difficult and dark times but come out of them even stronger. And although the darkness can feel like it's never going to go away, just like it can be nighttime and you feel like the sun will never come up, sure enough, mm-hmm. the sun does come and we see that brightness again. And so it might feel dark for a long time, but I think it will get light again, but especially I hope in that darkness you will allow yourself to grow and process and heal what you've gone through. Because until right. then almost any relationship you'll be in will probably have this underlying anxiety 
of that fear of abandonment of when are they going to leave? How do I know I get to keep them? And because of that, you'll further do what you tend to do of putting your own feelings and wants and needs aside because you want to make things okay. Never do something the other person doesn't like. Never upset them. Never hurt their feelings. And because of that, you'll completely sacrifice yourself in the relationship and you'll never get to really fully feel loved by them either because you'll be putting so much of yourself away. So um, I would really recommend that book, Drama of the Gifted Child, you might relate to. I have a feeling you will. But even more important than that, to, to really go into therapy. And therapy, a lot of times the healing is really more the relationship you create with the therapist that can be very healing. So it takes some time. So be ready to right. commit a long time to therapy, but that it can be very beneficial for you to realize I don't have to feel so sad and alone when I'm not with someone, but then also will allow you to create a healthier relationship. But for me, most important right. is that you feel good with you. And again, yeah. I know you're 19, but I feel like I'm talking to someone much older, which tells me there is a lot of pain there that has almost in a way forced you to grow up too fast. And you're going to have to right. go back and heal some of those wounds, um, as we all have wounds. But yours, I think the, the significance is that it's going to make it hard for you to relate to yourself and to others. I see, yes. Um, and um, one of the other things that um, I, I wanted to ask you um, is that, so in throughout my relationship, I made two uh, big mistakes, uh, I understand, that I that there were big mistakes, and um, I would like to tell you uh, those mistakes. Uh, and um, so, one of them is that um, think about like uh, August of last year. Um, I have this. Uh, well, first of all, I I, I think of myself. Um, I feel like I wasn't very lucky um, throughout my um, lifetime to have really. To, or to find a really good, good friend. Um, and by friends, I mean, like, trustworthy friends that um, that you can trust with everything. You're saying you have not had good luck or you had good luck? Yes, I, I haven't had Haven't, okay. Uh, now, one yeah. thing I'll say about that is that you might also be drawn to people that are not very trustworthy, unfortunately, because of what you've experienced with your family. Right. So your radar might be a little bit off, unfortunately. But I do want, you know, I have some other people on hold. So if you don't mind getting to it a little bit quicker, because I want to hear what you have to say. And even in the way you say it, it's almost like you want to make sure it's okay what you're saying. But go ahead. I'll let you finish and I'll share with you what I'm thinking. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, so um, I just wanted to know how, how to uh, make it okay. So um, one of the mistakes I made is that... Um, the, the the friend that I had that I um, uh, I've, I've had this friend for um, a long time now and um, and this friend is a, a is a guy and um, I think I feel like because of um, because of uh, in a way of my loneliness I felt like I feel something for this friend mm. um, and uh, it felt like that I do. And um, I wanted to be honest about it with my boyfriend, so I told him that um, I have a, a feeling for this another person that is a friend of mine, and uh, it really, it really uh, made my uh, boyfriend, in a way, um, very devastated. And mm-hmm. um, I feel like, you know, now right, right now, I realize that um, this, this feeling was a false feeling. 
Um, but for him, it's just I feel like I, I um, made trust issues with him. Like mm-hmm. he, he has trust issues uh, about me, and I just didn't know how, like how to fix it and how to help him deal with it and tell him that um, that's not what I really felt and for mm-hmm. him to basically believe me. Well, I mean, you know, it, it, you didn't do something wrong and that you actually cheated but the fact that you had feelings for someone else and told him it could affect the trust in a way that it doesn't ever recover he might not ever feel okay about that um that it was for him too much to to feel that you felt for someone else you know maybe emotional or more than that kind of a way now did you stay in touch with that friend afterwards uh not afterwards before okay that, yeah because, right uh, okay I, yeah, I was going to say it's probably going to be tough to even have that friendship to begin with. And, yeah. and you know, as far as fixing it, I don't know, because maybe your boyfriend will never feel okay and will never have that trust. And trust is a tough thing because sometimes when it's broken, you can repair it, but sometimes it can be too much. Um, but what I also hear, and even what you said about that friend in general and the feelings and being confused, is the loneliness is probably fueling a lot of what you're going to do in your relationships. Meaning that just mm-hmm. because you don't want to feel alone you'll connect or you'll feel things or express things just to avoid that loneliness. And that's why um, we want you to be okay being alone. And even though it's interesting, you did ask your boyfriend that almost like in a way of like, what is it like? How can someone be okay without someone? (laughs) And it's not that we're alone as in we isolate ourselves. We're social beings who need people and need relationships, but that we can also tolerate and enjoy our alone time and don't feel so devastatingly lonely when we are don't have someone um, and that we can then connect with people as well, having that balance and having both. So I don't know exactly how to say to repair it. You talk to him, you try to express it to him, but if there are trust issues, I'm sure that can continue to affect the relationship as well. Um, it does seem like there are some things that are concerning about the relationship and that's a new element of it. And you can't change what you said to him and you've tried to express it to him and make things clear. But if he can't get, past that it could be something that just you guys can't get past and if the trust isn't there the relationship can't really go too much further anywhere really grow it's going to really be tough to get past that yeah uh do you think like uh, a couple of therapy could uh maybe help us it, it could possibly but you know he has to want that too right so yeah, if you yeah. want you could talk to him it could be helpful but you know you have to be ready that even going to couples therapy might get you guys to see that the relationship is not going to work. So it's yeah. kind of like getting a diagnosis or getting, you know, an x-ray. You don't know. It could be helpful and make things better, or you could find out that there's something really wrong. So be ready for that part if you'd like to, but making sure you're not putting more effort into this than he is overall, because I could see you doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I see. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling. I wish you the best with those, uh, you know, what's going on, but especially the relationship. I know you're so focused on it, but I hope you'll focus on yourself mm-hmm. and what you've been through more than anything. Thank you. Thank you very much nice for talking um, you. your help. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Going into our next commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for calling. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, so I actually called you last year uh, around in, around May, and I talked to you about like being a little indecisive, and 
going to medical school and then like fear of failure and all those areas of uh, basically just like for anyone that's like pre like health student. Uh-huh. And as we further talked, you told me that there was like a perfectionist aspect of my personality and that's, that led to like procrastination in some aspects of life and uh, made me like, and like due to just like the amount of stress that comes with like, I guess, uh, any sort of like higher degree. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I further like process all that and so uh, proceeded with the journey of like being a student and I shadowed actually a dentist and I realized that I like dentistry better than like uh, just like being a physician. And so I switched field like around like two months ago and uh, I'm taking my exam in around like in two weeks. Mm-hmm. like the entrance exam and uh so one thing i noticed is that i have like subject tests that i'm taking and i score pretty well on those and then i was doing like a practice like a full length and during those exams i have a tendency of like completely just like like I, i've never experienced test anxiety and then during this like even like the full length that i know it's not for anything but just me to see like how i'm doing i like start to forget things and I cannot find the reason why like like when I'm going through the exam I'm just like how did I like miss this question and it's not like I don't know where it's rooting from hmm. basically and I was wondering if you could help me with that okay so you, yeah you're it sounds like you're studying for the the DAT for dental yes, school sir. okay and so you're saying when you take the subject tests one at a time you do well but then when you take them all at once to do a full practice test your score is really low is that what you're saying right so okay. like uh like for example like i would score like like a 21 like in like those chemistry sections and then i took a full length and i got like a 16 and a 17 and i, was, and I can't not find like the root to it because I, I mean i don't think it's like from not studying it because the subject test seems to be fine Mm-hmm. But yeah, I basically just can't figure out that route, and I was wondering if you could help me with hmm. that. Now, you you mentioned yourself. Do you think it's test anxiety? So, how do you feel that? Do you feel yourself when you take the longer test, just because it feels like maybe it's more like the real thing? You're more anxious, or you feel yourself get more anxious throughout. What what, what makes you think that you think it's test anxiety? Uh, so I actually I wasn't born in the United States. I moved here from Iran, like around seven years ago and I remember like my like when I was a freshman in high school they were telling me about the SAT and I had no idea what it was till I took it like uh, sophomore year of high school like late summer mm-hmm. and ever since then I had to take it twice and ever since then I don't know why I've been like traumatized from standardized tests like I yeah. absolutely hate them and I think that like this is the same reason honestly because it's just like the whole aspect of like putting it all together it's just like I keep, I don't know, like the second I get to a question, it's like I forget the entirety of like the thing that I know for, about like that section of biology or chemistry or anything that I'm test, getting mm-hmm. tested over and I cannot understand why. Like that's why I refer to it as test anxiety. Like, I don't know. It's just like that aspect of thinking about it, uh, that like this test is like, it's going to either make me, like, make me get into that old school or like I'm never going to get it. I, I guess. That's like kind of the mentality, but I don't know yeah. why I'm thinking that while taking that. Well, you know, there's a few aspects of this. One is just the test in general anxiety or taking an important test. But then you're saying it's interesting how when you take one subject, you do fine. But when you take the whole thing, 
I, I think when you take the whole thing, one thing is it probably makes it feel more real. So that could bring more anxiety. Another thing I'm wondering about is if you take a whole test, um, you know, you're doing subject after subject or section after section, you're going to probably be missing problems or there's questions that you're not sure about. And because you, you, I, I vaguely remember our conversation where you talked about perfectionism, there could be this accumulation or buildup when you don't know a question and then you have to keep going that it might be hard for you to go forward without having that anxiety build up about, oh, but three questions ago, I wasn't sure about the answer or, um, you know, whatever it might be. And, and these kinds of tests, usually I know even when you do really well, you still miss a lot of questions. Like you're not going to get everything right. But there could right. also be that buildup of when you keep getting to questions that you're not sure about, that buildup of perfectionism, I'm supposed to get all of them right. And maybe it's hard for you to shake that and move forward to the next question or questions that you have to do. Because I've worked with people that take like a math test and they're the third question they, they're not sure about. And then even when they're doing problem 10, they're still thinking about on problem three, why didn't I know the answer or was my answer right or should I go back and do it? So, of course, now even uh, on this next problem, they're not as mindful or not fully using all their mental energy there. So do you feel that like when you don't know answers, it, it has a effect on you and that might be building up? Could that be a possibility? Uh, I, mean, I absolutely sense uh, the first portion of that, like the fact that like I, like I don't get it and I'm just like, okay, oh my God, like what if the rest of the test is like, right. which is absolutely nonsense because the rest of the test is not similar topic because it covers like such a big array of problems. And I'm just like, oh my God, what if there's like more of this? Like, so I'm assuming it's that's where, it's, as you said, yeah, that's where it's probably rooting from, yeah. So, okay, there could be that yeah. involved. Another thing that can be, so and related to that is, it might not completely take it away, but reminding yourself, as I said, I don't know the scoring, but my assumption would be that even if you do a really do really well, well enough to get into good schools, you're still going to miss a lot of problems throughout the test. Like you're obviously not supposed to get every single thing right uh, to even get a good score. So reminding yourself that it's okay. And that can be hard for you if you feel like there is a perfectionism because it does feel very all or nothing, either doing perfect and you're doing well or you're missing some and you're a failure or you're bad or all those other things so it could be good to remind yourself even looking at the scoring and seeing how oh look even if you get a 21 it means you still missed this many questions or i don't know whatever it is to, to give yourself right. that assurance and also try not to make it as dramatic even something you said like this is going to make or break my career or either i get into school or i don't of course it has an impact um, but the more you put the pressure on it, the more it's going to, you're going to put too much pressure on it. You're going to try hard enough. We're not worried about that, but don't think this is going to make or break your career or your life or anything. Even when you go to dental school, of course, I'm sure where you go does matter, but it's going to be a lot more about how you perform at that dental school and also what you do afterwards. So this test isn't going to make or break your career. And so don't put that kind of pressure on it because the more pressure you put on it, it's going to crush you rather than push you forward. Okay, for sure, yeah. I'll, I'll definitely take that into consideration. So considering all this, uh, so do you think, like, so I've taken um, three full-length practice tests, and yeah. the first one, it was great. Like, I, I did absolutely fine on it. And then the next two, I went down by one point, so it was, like, 20, 19, and 18. And, like, uh, like the average score that basically gets you in is around, like, like, like 18 and above, basically, is just if you have, like, a decent GPA, it can't, like, you'll get an interview and all that, mm -hmm. uh, like, complimentary factors. Uh, do you think, like, considering all this, do you think I should 
uh, reschedule the test since it's in like less than two weeks, or should I just take it then? Well, I don't want to tell you exactly, you know, to to take it or not. Now, just so I'm clear, you're saying even on those full-length ones where you said you didn't do as well, it seems like you still had a pretty strong score, just not as high as when you did the individual subject tests? Right. Okay, so your test seems pretty good. Uh, whether or not to repl- uh, to reschedule it, I'll make also these suggestions. If you're having that issue with the long-term tests, I know sometimes it's harder to get access to full-length tests, but I would recommend mm-hmm. doing that more to because... One of the things that reduces our anxiety is getting exposure to that thing we're anxious about. So take some more full-length tests to get more comfortable and familiar with that. And so it becomes a little less scary because that could help. And also just some things about the test itself. Um, I would visit the place where you're going to take the test if you can. Maybe you can't go into the actual place where you sit at the computer or whatever it is. But if you feel like you do have test anxiety... That those kinds of things can help. For example, even just going there and driving and getting an idea of the route and where you're going to park and how you walk to the place and how much time you need. Those things can help make that day of a little bit less anxiety provoking. And if you know you're anxious, I would say just go pretty early, you know, give yourself time so you don't stress out about it and do those kinds of things. So there's also things you can do in that sense the day of. But I would say as far as preparing, I don't know if two weeks is enough time or if you you need more time i would just recommend taking more of the full length tests even if they they probably make you more anxious but that's okay we're doing it so that you feel the anxiety now and less of it when you take the test when it's the the real thing okay for sure yeah Yeah. all right i'll I'll definitely do that yeah but it seems like you know then like i said don't put too much pressure on it seems like you're doing well even on those practice ones the scores you're getting you're saying are good enough to get you into a good school and so less pressure is going to be better for you. You're going to try hard enough. We have to just make sure it doesn't push you too much and that you, you do worse than you can do and that this is not going to dictate your life. It has an impact, but it's definitely not going to determine the success of your career, your happiness, how much money you can make, any of those things. Uh, it'll have just one small impact and a lot is going to be based on what you do after that. So don't make this the everything, you know? Okay, for sure. All right. All right. Good Thank luck. You so much. Yeah, nice talking to you. Take you. care. Likewise. Thank All right. you. Bye-bye. All right, going into our last commercial break, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fahid Alakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In this last segment, I wanted to talk about um, what we can call, I guess it's a holiday, although it's not a national holiday, but a holiday here in the United States. It is June 19th here, and June 19th in is also called Juneteenth because in June 19th, 1865, um, the slaves in Texas were finally notified about the Emancipation Proclamation, which was ending slavery or abolishing slavery in the United States. Now, um, it was actually a year and a half before that, January 1st, 1863, where President Abraham Lincoln issued the final Emancipation Proclamation proclamation that was to free slaves but it wasn't until a year and a half later really till um, some slaves in texas were notified but in a lot of ways juneteenth june 19th is considered a to commemorate the end of slavery in the united states and it's a holiday that most people aren't really familiar with uh, i would say in the united states even my, i myself did not know much about it till a few years ago that people 
commemorated and celebrated it unfortunately really doesn't get a lot of attention uh, in general most people don't know about it which i think is unfortunate when it does commemorate a very important day and in that way a happy day but of course also points to one of the biggest marks in american history negative marks that we have and maybe that's part of why we don't like to talk about it because it does bring up this very painful negative and horrible thing that was happening and is uh, unfortunately a big part of what started the united states or what was um, contributing to how the, the nation started in the civil war which was from 1861 till 1865 also such a horrible thing that happened and it was mainly over the issue of slavery and thankfully uh, things sided with justice and human rights where slavery was no longer legal in the united states but we can still see that the marks of what has happened have had an effect or continue to have an effect on the country and i don't want to get too much into those details or make it too political but i do think it's important to mention today is juneteenth juneteenth a very important day in american history june 19th 1865 which is in that way considered uh, emancipation day or some people even say black independence day um, because in a few weeks we'll celebrate july 4th here in the united states which is considered the day of when america got its freedom from british rule but when we think about it um, although it was the freedom for america many people who lived in america did not have freedom so it was a free freedom for some people but some people were enslaved for uh, what about 100 years after that so it was not their freedom day and so we didn't give freedom to all but what i also wanted to talk about related to that is again it's hard for us even to fathom that it was legal for people to own someone else even saying it sounds odd or strange for me to use those words that someone could own someone unfortunately slavery still exists in the world uh, i don't know enough about the details and the numbers to talk about that too much we know it still definitely does exist in some ways even legally but especially illegally um, but coming back to this notion that even we accepted it and i've talked before especially on recent shows about how uh, a lot of ideas that people have moral ideas that we have it's more a feeling that we have than thinking about it and because of that lots of very smart people have held some pretty stupid moral beliefs throughout history and so a lot of uh, very immoral and unethical behaviors and ideas and concepts have been written in very beautiful eloquent smart language because smart people believe stupid things so if you go back to um, the times where they were arguing over whether slavery should be abolished or not many people in favor of slavery wrote their um, arguments in very eloquent language and with very nice sounding words even though they're defending something horrible and abhorrent and very bad so that's something to keep in mind that yes when we look back we see that but even today we have to be very mindful of just because someone is smart or saying something or just because someone has some good ideas doesn't mean all their ideas are good and when it comes to moral issues they can't be wrong and of course that includes me absolutely you can and should disagree with me and if you do please let me know because i'm sure i could learn from you or at least understand myself even better but people have upheld some very bad and immoral beliefs 
even though they were intellectually smart or intelligent in that way, doesn't mean they were right morally. And so we can see that throughout history. But another element of this that relates psychologically is how we as humans can be very good at dehumanizing other people. By dehumanizing, meaning somehow making them less than human or saying they're less than human or even trying to scientifically prove they are somehow less than, which unfortunately there's a lot of history of that uh, throughout the world, but even in the realm of psychiatry and psychology, trying to figure out why some people are certain ways. Or, for example, thinking that women were inferior to men. And a lot of men who were scientists, maybe quote-unquote scientists, but they would show why scientifically it made sense that women were inferior or deserved less rights or didn't deserve everything they wanted. And, of course, with race, this has also been done extensively, that people are somehow less than. And here's the quote-unquote science. So, for example, I can create a test to measure what I call intelligence. And then if it's culturally biased towards, let's say, Iranians, well, Iranians will have a higher IQ. And then I say, look, this proves that Iranians have higher IQ. And then I give it to non-Iranians and I say, this proves the genetic superiority of Iranians. But if I'm making the test and if it's culturally biased and I'm saying this is what intelligence is, then yes, according to that test, it will appear that Iranians are more intelligent, but it's because of the test and how it is biased, not actually that it's measuring something real or what it's proposing to um, measure. But when we dehumanize people, um, we allow ourselves to then treat them as less than human. And we see this before anytime there's been a genocide or very often when a country is going to war with another country, they dehumanize them, either saying somehow they're less than human or they're robots or they're animals. And so you see this in a lot of propaganda before a war or genocide that the other group, whoever the them is, is portrayed as rats or snakes or spiders or bugs or whatever it might be, which in a way is saying they're less than human. So if we kill them, if we torture them, if we rape them, that's okay because they're not even human. They don't deserve to be treated as humans. So we see it done in this systematic way, but we also see it happening in smaller scales in our individual lives. In an, maybe we can say, unfortunate way, we can feel good when we put other people down. This is one of the reasons why people like to gossip and talk bad about other people is that it makes us feel good. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Oh, I can't believe she did that. Or I can't believe he did that. And he does this all the time. And I would never do that if I was in that situation. And I can't believe it. They did this or they did that. And in this way, we make ourselves feel better in that moment. I feel good by putting that other person down because in comparison, I'm saying I'm better than them. And what I really think is happening, there's a lot of things happening, but one important aspect of it is that because we can all feel inferior within ourselves at times, self-esteem is not just this thing that you have and it's perfect. We can have feelings of inferiority or that we're not good enough or that we're less than. And because of that, what can feel good sometimes is to project that onto other people or even to another group. So the people of this group are weaker or less than. In a way, getting away from my own feelings of inferiority, my own fears of being less than, I'm putting that onto someone else or to some other group. And in that way, it makes me feel better. 
look at the so-and-sos. They are so weak and this and this and this. I am from the superior race or superior group or superior religion or superior whatever, and that makes me better than them. And so in that way, I get rid of my own feelings of inferiority by projecting them or putting them on to someone else. When really that isn't the case, people are different and in various ways we can be different, but doesn't mean that some deserve rights and some don't, or that some human beings are more human or less human than others. We are all human beings and deserve rights. And so I say this also to remind ourselves that when we find ourselves um, thinking of some group as less than, and for some reason three groups came into my mind that have historically and even in some ways presently gone, that one is women, um, and that that's a group that has been historically thought of as less than. And of course, we're making a lot of progress, but still have ways to go. But also uh, because of the dates, um, the LGBTQ community, June is Pride Month. And so you see a lot of rainbows um, everywhere this month, which is good. We're promoting that. But a group that has been historically and still continues to be thought of as less than by some people, immoral, not deserving of all the rights. And that's why I made a post recently saying that when we talk about LGBTQ or anyone rights, we're talking about human rights. It's not a political issue. Everyone deserves rights when we're talking about human rights. Um, but then also the third group was African-Americans or blacks, but especially when we talk about blacks, we say African-Americans in the United States who, because today's Juneteenth and we're talking about the emancipation, but who continue to be at systematically treated un, uh, unfairly and we still see that and in all three groups we see that throughout history sometimes people saying they are less than dehumanizing them or still some people will hold on to those thoughts or beliefs and so it's to think about when we see another group as less than it can be and maybe more than likely is an expression of our own feeling of not being enough, our own feeling of being less than that we're projecting onto them. So very often we recognize that when someone thinks something about us, it's more about them than us. Well, also we have to hold ourselves to that same standard. If I'm thinking about thinking something negative about a certain group, it probably says more about me than it does about them. If I think the such and such people are bad people, it's probably not about them. It's about something, a bias within myself and also a projection of my own fear of not being enough that I'm putting onto them. If we think of anyone as less than, it's probably to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And we can understand that, but not give in to that. Okay, if I'm going to gossip negatively about so-and-so because it's going to make me feel good, I get it. I see that it's going to make me feel good, but I'm going to choose not to. Or if I think this group is bad and I want to talk about how bad they are, maybe I should take a step back and say, why do I want to feel good by making this group look bad or talk bad about them? And almost always dehumanization is going to be coming from this feeling of inferiority and desire to be powerful and strong within ourself that we're somehow putting down some other person or some other group. It's not a real thing. So today is Juneteenth here in the United States where we celebrate the emancipation of slaves and the end of slavery a very horrible thing that happened in U.S. history, but is a very real thing and significant part of U.S. history. And because I am doing a show this year on the day, I wanted to make sure I uh, talked about that and mentioned that today. So thank you for everyone listening tonight or today. The book of the week for this week is Neurologic by Eliza Sternberg, which I'll talk about on next Wednesday, Wednesday's show. All right, you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. Have a wonderful day. 